are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. Tonight, we are discussing prescription stimulant misuse. In this episode, we are going to discuss the emerging trend of prescription misuse. And this and this information is coming from NIDA's website on prescription misuse, on prescription stimulant misuse. So as a little bit of background, stimulants are believed to exert their effects by targeting the dopaminergic and noradrenergic systems, and they increase their, the concentration of these neurotransmitters in the synaptic cleft. When used as prescribed, pres- prescription stimulants do not pose significant health risk to individuals, but due to their high risk for and potential for misuse that may pro- and they may produce psychological and or physiological dependence they are considered they are scheduled 2 in the US and so they are highly regulated because when they are used in higher than normal doses or taken by it, taken inappropriately so by not the normal route so either by intranasal or injected or higher than prescribed doses or by individuals who should not be taking them or combining them with other substances, then that's when we get some of these side effects that we're going to discuss. So some of the reported side effects are decreased appetite, weight loss, headache, insomnia, abdominal pain, dizziness, nervousness, emotional ability, dry mouth. Those can be seen sometimes in normal doses, but definitely we'll see that when you start getting into these higher doses. Then the more severe side effects, we start seeing psychosis, paranoia, seizures, and cardiac events. So tachycardia, hypertension, myocardial infarction, and sudden death. Rarely do you see those serious or severe side effects in individuals taking a therapeutic dose orally. And there is some concerning trends, so long-term exposure to higher doses of prescription stimulants, increasing risk of adverse cardiovascular events. So that's still being studied, but definitely something to have these discussions and cautions about with our patients. So routes of misuse. So we see intravenous use, intranasal, snorting, and that significantly enhances the risks and side effects of the prescription stimulants. That's just a brief introduction to to the prescription stimulants. And then let's get into the epidemiology. I think that's a little bit more of the interesting part and the trends that we've been seeing. So do you want to lead us into that, Paula? Yeah, absolutely. So 
This epidemiology data is um, taken from an advisory that was published by SAMHSA titled Prescription Stimulant Misuse and Prevention Among Youth and Young Adults. It's an excellent advisory. Its resources are long and it cites many excellent references, um, most of which are really relevant and recent, including data from 2020 and 2021. Um, According to SAMHSA in 2019, um, they've gotten data from the NASDA study. Okay, for prescription stimulant use and misuse amongst youth ages 12 to 17 for the time period, 7.5% of youth reported the use of prescription stimulants in the past year. So that's just they had prescription stimulants. 1.7% of youth reported the misuse of prescription stimulants in the past year. That's actually lower than I would have guessed, Darlene. I don't know, one7 And 0.3% of youth had a prescription stimulant use disorder. So they actually meet criteria um, of, you know, for stimulant use disorder. Now look at this though, 23.4% of youth who used any prescription stimulants in the past year misused them. So that's kind of interesting. Um, It's kind of tricky statistics to look at. So if you have a prescription stimulant, you are likely to misuse it. I guess that's kind of the bottom line, right? If you have a prescription stimulant ages 12 to 17, you are 20, 23.4% of those kiddos are um, misusing them. Also, amphetamine type stimulants as a class were most commonly um, misused, okay, as amongst 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. So as opposed to the other stimulants. So this is like basically Adderall uh, brand name stimulants as opposed to methylphenidate and other stimulant drugs. So if we look at the next age category, which is young adults ages 18 to 25. So these are mostly our college age kiddos and young people. Um, 12.8% of young adults reported the use of prescription stimulants in the last year, and 5.8% of young adults reported the misuse of prescription stimulants in the last year, and 0.6% had a prescription stimulant use disorder. So significantly more young adults used prescription stimulants, significantly more misused prescription stimulants. And versus 23.4% of youth who used any prescription stimulants misusing them, 45.2% of young adults who used any prescription stimulants in the past year misused them. So that's pretty huge. Those are more along the lines of the statistics I was expecting to see. I've seen some of these studies before. I know you have, Darlene, where we know college age kids and young adults are much more likely to misuse prescription stimulants compared to um, younger kiddos or older adults, anyone over 25. We also know that young adults who are in college are more likely to misuse prescription stimulants when compared to their non-college attending peers, which makes a lot of sense, right? Stimulant prescription misuse is kind of a thing of college campuses. So in a summary, the prevalence of prescription drug misuse is highest amongst young adults between ages of 18 to 25. So when you're thinking of an age group, that's your highest rich risk age group still exists in kids age 12 to 17. And in the age group of 18 to 25, the rates of prescription stimulant misuse are much higher than the rates of misuse for other categories of prescription medications. So the most likely misused prescription medication is going to be a stimulant as opposed to a sedative hypnotic or an opioid. Okay.
Um, there's something else that's interesting that came out of this um, advisory from SAMHSA, and it says that as many as 17% of those who use prescription stimulants, regardless of how they're obtained, misuse them via a non-oral route. Okay, so probably snorted, I'm guessing, or maybe chewed. Um, I don't know. What did you say? What do you think, Darlene? It wasn't specified, but as many as 17%, no matter how they got them, whether it was prescribed or whether they got them from friends or misusing them some other way, are using the stimulant in a non-oral route. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't specify, but just from what we see, well, snorted, it, snorted and chewed actually are probably pretty equal from just our patient population. Yeah. I mean, I, that's what I hear really commonly is people who misuse their, especially amphetamine type stimulant. Um, it's nearly always uh, snorted. Their route is snorted. So, all right. Okay. Let's talk about diversion. So since this is of interest, you know, a lot of folks are diverting, excuse me, are misusing. They're um, misusing prescription stimulants. So how, like, how does this happen? So this brings up the question of diversion. So talk to us a little bit about diversion. Yeah, I was really interested in this of number one, why are they diverting? And then who is diverting? This is a little bit different from other our other substances that we see being misused and particularly sometimes even compared to our opiates. One, the motivation behind diversion wasn't primarily monetary, was the first thing that came out of some of these studies that showed. And because it seems to be highest among, and one thing that showed was these college ages, 18 to 25. So it's definitely those who are in college, because that same 18 to 25 year old group that is not enrolled in college actually has a lower rate of prescription stimulant misuse. Not necessarily we're saying a lower rate of substance use, but a lower rate of prescription stimulant misuse. So that was really interesting. So some of the reason of first, like who's at risk, males more than females, off-campus students tended to have a higher rate. And then this pops up again. We've talked about this in other episodes. If participation in Greek life, like the biggest thing is multiple studies shows they were more likely to vert with just these feelings. Well, I'm just trying to help out a friend. They weren't necessarily needing money or this wasn't a like um, a, a whole like underground program. It's just like, yeah, I have some extra. And so some for me and some for my friend. And so it was more of that. One big area that this is really important for us as physicians in the medical community is another thing that shows is they're also much more likely to divert is if they have more medication prescribed than what is needed. And that was the single most thing is so any student that has is more open to diverting if they have a surplus. So that's an important question is to really ask yeah. our patients is how much, how are they really taking their medication? I think that's such an interesting point. And that's true for all medications. I mean, not true. boring things like hydrochlorothiazide, like no one necessarily wants to hand out extra lisinopril or anything. But I think it's really true for a lot of us, a lot of people, that if you have extra of something and someone that you know and like 
needs it, quotation marks, you're like, hey, well, I have some, you know, why don't you try it? Or I can give you some, you know, whatever it is um, to tide you over or try it out. Or, um, of course, there may be some more nefarious goings on, especially, I think, college campuses around exam time. You know, um, you know, medications like amphetamine types. I mean, let's go for a price. But this surplus, this drug surplus creates a market for sure. Yeah, and that's probably the single most area where we can have the most impact as physicians is to reduce that surplus, is is having that. And you brought this up before, Paulo, is when we are having these interviews with our patients, you just need to be curious. And I've I've had this with patients, like, number one, you need to have those prescription agreements in your practice, and that includes with controlled substances is you you know number one this is your medication you do not share it and i and i remember i had some 20 something year old in my office oh really i'm not supposed to give this to my friend and so it's like all right so we need to have a conversation here but that is something that needs to be happening in the first place and having just those discussions cuz it's amazing what patients will tell you when you ask and just have those conversations and make sure that again, are you asking how are you true? How are you really taking this medication? The other thing, and this was another one interest that was interesting as they talked about, is the other reasons that is these pressures to receive to receive praise and merit, and that increased risk. Just what you talked about around exam times, you have that increased. Where number one, you have students going seeking these drugs and then that increases that risk where they're going to go and be asking for it so they're sorry they're going to be sharing it and seeking it during those times so another risk factor is just those who have a family member who has a prescription so knowing somebody close to you or that you live with that has a prescription then they're more likely to that's just so those are just some of the reasons that we see it and there's several, there are several studies that you can, that links to that, the SAMHSA advisory links you to, and they go into a lot more information, but you can read a lot of those different studies that are really interesting. Right. Okay. So, and what about risk factors? Who is actually misusing prescription yeah. stimulants? Like, so you talked about the risk factors for diversion. Well, who... Yes other recipients, basically, of the diverting. Um, this is interesting. And SAMHSA talks about this. They have a really great table on this in their advisory. They've actually broken it into risk factors and protective factors, and they've divided into just risk factors for prescription stimulant misuse, and then risk factors for substance use and prescription drug misuse and prescription stimulant misuse, so kind of a broader category. And for prescription stimulant misuse, risk factors include ages 18 to 25, this is a risk factor in and of itself, being white, having a diagnosis of ADHD, which makes sense because you're more likely to be prescribed a stimulant, yep. and then having an older or higher grade level. So kids, you know, like 10, 11, 12th graders were more likely to divert, excuse me, to misuse than an eighth graders, right? Um, also, mental health comorbidities are more likely to... Um, have substance use or prescription drug misuse as well as stimulant misuse, motivation for misuse, poor academic performance. If they have a history of substance use, they're more likely to engage in stimulant misuse. And then if they're engaging in other risky and impulsive behaviors, that's going to be a red flag as well. So look for your uh, binge drinkers or look for your 
standardized screening tests like the craft um oh, the, the BSTAD for adolescents and young people yeah that's going to help um evaluate and see if people are are you know possibly misusing what's a what are protective factors commitment to education four-year college degree is actually protective and then social coping skills there are some family and relationship and community um, risk factors as well so household or family members as a source of prescription stimulants you said that's a risk factor for diversion as well lack of parental support and monitoring negative parental attitudes and a family a substance use by family members so we see this all the time in our population mm -hmm. where substance use by siblings parents aunts uncles are very very commonly the introducers of substance use in our patients um, protective factors then parental disapproval of prescription prescription drug misuse stronger parental bonds parental supervision and in general for family unity so um what about friends as a source of prescription stimulants? That's also a risk um, for misuse and also just having an easily accessible supply to prescription stimulants. If you have friends who are using, so again, if you have kiddos under age 15, remember to use the craft tool in a slightly different way than if you have kiddos over 15. You want to start out by asking them what their peers are doing in terms of substance use and consequences yes. of their peers with substance use as opposed to asking them directly what their experiences with substance use it kind of gets around the corner little kids not little kids 14 year olds would be really annoyed if i took, called them little kids but kids under 15 have been shown to be more um, likely to end up using drugs if they are um, have peers who are using drugs um, so and then also peers who are accepting of prescription drug misuse which of course makes sense right if the culture is like hey yeah listen we all we all you know snort adderall then it's just everyone's doing it greater prescription drug stimulant misuse by peers um, it's just saying all the same things kind of in a different way so again one more risk factor is pressure on academic achievement you've just said that we see and hear that kids who have a lot of pressure to perform a certain way um, and do very well are more likely to be engaged um, in prescription stimulant misuse. So those are some of the risk factors for kids and young adults who may be misusing. Um, and that then gives us a target population to work with in terms of prevention right? It doesn't mean that we discriminate and target, but we can look at kids who have mental health conditions, maybe make sure that we're identifying youth and young adults who experiment with other substances or risky behavior, um, talk to kids who have communities with a high prevalence of substance use or family history of substance use. Um, also make sure if we see kids who are really struggling in school or who have a lot of family pressure to do very well in school, talk to them about the availability of prescription stimulants and um, you know that they may be asked for if they have a prescription of prescription stimulants or if they are offered or if they're seeking kind of what the ramifications are, what the risks are. Absolutely. All right. Well, should we just talk about, I mean, we can talk about, let's talk about ways to reduce diversion and misuse then. I mean, we talked a little bit about prevention there for a quick second, but I um, mean, you talked about this for a second, Darlene, when you talked about getting a signed agreement from patients and guardians and you also talked about education and like actually counseling your patients like hey look it's not appropriate to share your medication and even though you may be being nice or your friend needs it yeah. or wants it 
It's actually not okay to share your medication. Your medication's only for you. And I think this is a valid point. A lot of young people and young adults don't know that their prescription only for them. And it's actually against the law to share a prescription. And that's true for any medication, actually, that is prescribed and in your name. But it's especially true for a controlled substance. So it's not that I'm like putting the fear into people, but I think it's worth telling people like you're not allowed to share this medication. If you do, it's a violation of like federal law. <laughs> Don't do it. Well, and yeah. I, I think that's such an important thing, Paula, is you have to understand this 18 to 25 year old population. Some of them, this is the first time they're going to a doctor by themselves. And some are very savvy. Some are not. And so it's important that. Hopefully, you've they, some of them have been becoming more engaged in their health care in their late teens, but some really haven't. They just go to the doctors with mom or dad and sit in their appointments and stare at you and don't really communicate much. So we have both interactions, right? Mm-hmm. So the, we see we see the whole spectrum. So I think it's really important that we are getting that really informed consent every time that you understand you are taking a controlled substance and exactly what you said, it is against the law. And this is why it's against the law because it has these and these side effects. And if somebody, even your friend that you care about takes this medication inappropriately, they could die and it's harmful. And so that's the discussion that needs to, you need to have. So that's one that we can do is education And then two, protecting our licenses is that's why we have that patient agreement that we've documented that we had this discussion. And then I I love that because you talked about before, be curious with the patient, how do you really take this medication? If you tell me that, you know what, like I sleep till 2 p.m. on Saturday and so I don't take the medication because it keeps me awake. So I don't take it usually on the weekends. So we need to be careful because with our you know, electronic medical records now, like, you know, it auto populates 30 every month, like, okay, well, maybe you only, we should only be prescribing, you know, 26, or we should only be prescribing 20 every month, and reduce that. So we do need to be better stewards as physicians. And I think this is, I absolutely agree with you. The other thing is, making sure that we're appropriately prescribing stimulants to the right people. I mean, I think this is beating a dead horse, but, and coming from addiction medicine doctors, I think people kind of eye roll. I mean, there's clearly an indication for stimulant medication. It's the number one, it's the first line agent for ADHD for youth, okay, for the treatment of young adults and youth. However, you know, I think there are so many adults, especially who think they have ADD right now and ADHD, especially after the pandemic. We're all on our computers too much. We're at home. We're struggling with distraction. We have so many, um, you know, devices. It's hard to focus and it's hard to stay on task. And so we all think we have ADHD. I mean, not all. That's a blanket statement. But many of us are struggling with focus and concentration. So it's very easy to prescribe stimulants erroneously and without the correct diagnosis. So make sure we're prescribing stimulants judiciously to the right patient and really ascertaining the risk. I mean, we've all, especially addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry, we've seen terrible effects from stimulants. Yes. Like they really are medications that carry risks. So we have to be careful 
about that. Make sure that's the right medication. And if it's not a youth, so if it's not a first line medication, so in adults, for patients who definitely have diagnosis of ADHD, consider using, you know, if you don't need to go straight to a stimulant, using a second line agent like bupropion or guanfacine or atomoxetine first, as well as behavioral modifications before you use a stimulant. Um, unless, you know, a stimulant is what's indicated and the patient does well on it. But just make sure we're using it for the right people. And then you already said this, but make sure we're not over prescribing. So not giving a dose that's too high or giving a quantity that's too many because stockpiling is a risk for diverting. And it's also just a hazard to have all these kinds of controlled substances lying around in people's homes. And also be very careful about multiple refills without reassessing the patient. So you can't refill a Schedule 2, but you can give dated prescriptions or you can just keep saying yes when the patient calls in for a refill without reassessing your patient to see how they're doing, how they're taking it, how it's affecting them. And that just kind of raises the risk. Yes, that's a that's a really good point. What else, what else is uh what else can we do in terms of reducing um misuse in terms of a practitioner? Really making sure that you have identified their primary diagnosis because I think that's a real a key issue. So many people come in with the complaint of concentration difficulty. I had a really interesting conversation with a psychologist just a couple of weeks ago, and that was a big source of their frustration. As they said, the patient comes in and that's their main complaint, and but their real their real diagnosis is anxiety. They might have some concentration difficulty, but their real concern is like anxiety or some other mental health diagnosis. But we get hyper-focused on just this and then we get this over-prescribing. And I think that's key is make sure we have the correct diagnosis. And that's a key to prevent misuse is making sure that you're prescribing appropriately in the first place. Because when we're not, when we have sometimes the wrong diagnosis, then people are more likely to divert because they really don't need the medication. And so that's really important is make sure, one, you have the correct diagnosis, the correct medication for the diagnosis, and the correct quantity, because I think you need all three. And that's why this is such a, that's a, why it's a regulated medication for that reason. And make sure your patient is aware of that. I'm, it's surprising how many times patients don't understand why we don't just give them unlimited refills. They don't understand that this medication does carry some risks. So right. I think that's great. Yeah. And then yeah. also, you know, um, we remember to um, also check your PDMP. So follow through with any good controlled substance yeah. uh, guidelines. So we talked about seeing patients regularly and doing, you know, you have to document like a history and a physical exam, you know, when people come back, right? You can't just keep yeah. giving people controlled substances without any monitoring. Um, and also check the PDMP, which is the um, prescription drug monitoring program to see that patients are picking up their prescriptions appropriately and not getting prescriptions from multiple providers or multiple pharmacies. So that just kind of reduces diversion or misuse. Now, this all comes from SAMHSA. This isn't coming from us. <laughs> I mean, we're 
chiming in, but, um, and we sound a little bit preachy, I think, but this all comes from SAMHSA's advisory. Um, this advisory is available to download. Uh, it's a PDF and it's really good. It's not very long. They have some really great um, key points that we're going to go over. And they also have a lot of wonderful resources at the end, including screening tools that you can use in terms of trying to identify if your mm -hmm. patients are misusing yeah. um, or have a use disorder regarding their stimulant use, prescription stimulant use. They have a lot of resources regarding stimulant prevention, um, including an article called Preventing Amphetamines Type Stimulant Use Amongst Young People. They have specific um, resources for college-age people. They have resources in Spanish, which, of course, they should. And then they have broad prevention resources as well for um, campus drug prevention, et cetera. So um, let's just review some key points, and then we'll uh, recommend that you refer to that SAMHSA advisory as a great recommendation and tool for practitioners, educators, parents. They do have tips for parents and educators in there as well. So otherwise, to sum up, what are some of the key points from uh, prescription stimulant misuse, especially in youth and young adults? Well, I mean, just just some of the what we've just said, but make sure that you have carefully reviewed the type, what formulation, the medication that you're using, limit the frequency of prescriptions and refills. Like you said, you need to be following up on these patients and look at uh, are you know are you prescribing the appropriate amount does this person need perhaps less make sure that you have a signed agreement from the patient and or guardian depending on their age provide education and instructions on the proper use and storage of their medication that their medication is stored typically controlled substance we always recommend that are stored in a lockbox so that it's safe and secure that nobody else has access to provide counseling on the consequences of misuse and diversion, make sure the patient knows that this is a Schedule II substance and that it is illegal to be shared with friends or sold or given away for any reason. Carefully monitor the patient receiving their stimulant medication, obviously monitoring your prescription drug monitoring. Yeah. That's it. I agree. And then one more yeah. thing I just wanted to say is, we didn't really talk about this, but um, the appropriate prescribing and use of prescription stimulants for children and youth who have ADHD with stimulants is a pro is does not lead to a substance use disorder. Okay, in fact, the opposite is true. If you have a child or a or a teenager who truly has ADHD and it's a, it's affecting their performance in school or their ability to interact appropriately in society, treating them with an appropriate medication and follow up and helping them learn other coping skills is the right thing to do. And it doesn't put them at risk of a substance use disorder. In fact, untreated ADHD is what seems to lead people to delinquency and substance use. However, the medications should be monitored and we should be always checking for the development of any side effects of any medication, but especially a controlled substance, right? No matter what the age of the patient. However, in adults, that's not necessarily true because it just becomes a little bit murkier in terms of the diagnosis. So we just, wanna, just wanted to bring that up because I think some parents or prescribers may be hesitant to 
treat ADHD appropriately. However, we know from lots of good studies that there's no connection between taking a stimulant medication as a child with ADHD and substance use later in life. Yes, okay. I think that's a great like yeah. message is this mm-hmm. is not the point of this like podcast mm-hmm. to say don't treat people with the appropriate diagnosis. But yeah, absolutely. Like if they have the correct diagnosis and the medication's appropriate, but definitely do your appropriate monitoring. Absolutely, Paula. That's a great point. Right. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. All right, Darlene, I think that's a wrap and follow us on Twitter at the addiction fi, F-I-1, number one. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers. Addiction files. We are talking about prescri- prescription stimulant misuse. Now I forgot what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You're like, yep, we're talking about it. I don't know what we're saying, but we're Clearly, talking about it. I need some kind of <laughs> stimulant. <laughs> oh my gosh. You're not the only one. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Okay. Let me yeah. just. Um, we always post uh, articles and relevant news regarding the um, substance use world and we're also on instagram and facebook and we have a web page and we also have um what else do we have Our email email <laughs> i knew I the addiction files at gmail <laughs> the, the addiction files at gmail.com so follow up with us and we'll be back in two weeks all right thank you have a good night